This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory and Le'ilui Nishmas Bila Bat Avigdor, may her soul be elevated in heaven. Today I want to discuss one of the central themes of the Parsha and perhaps one of the most empowering and surprising principles, if one that's a bit less well-known than maybe it should be. So the Parsha begins with a convention of the Jewish people. All the people got together and were told in the first verse of our Parsha, you're all standing here, all of you, the heads of the tribe, the elders, the officers, all the men of Israel, small children, women, proselyte, the woodchoppers, the hewer of wood, and the drawer of water, the water carriers. Who are these woodchoppers and water carriers? Rashi says that just as in the time of Joshua, the Gibeonites came to convert, they wanted to convert to the Jewish people, but they weren't legitimate converts. So Joshua made them a permanent underclass of the Jewish people, woodchoppers and water carriers. So too, tells us Rashi, the Canaanites came in the time of Moses to convert, and Moses as well made these suspect converts into woodchoppers and water carriers. Now, the Ramban points out that even though these people in the time of Joshua, they duped him, they managed to make Joshua believe that they were legitimate converts, even though they weren't, they didn't dupe Moses. That's what Ramban tells us. Now, others tell us, no, these were not different, distinct groups. It's the same people. But Moshe decreed that these people, these suspect converts, be water carriers and woodchoppers for one generation, and Joshua made it permanent. So regardless, we have these group of Jews who must be held at arm's length. They converted after all, but their allegiances are still somewhat questionable. So of course, there's a few questions that we could ask just to kick things off. Why is it important to mention that the woodchoppers... And the water carriers were here at this convention. You would imagine that these people have been around for a while. Yet, to my knowledge, they are mentioned now for the first time. Now, the commentaries note that this convention that's happening, Rashi tells us the day of Moshe's passing, this convention, all of Israel's there. And there's 10 different groups. You have the heads and the tribes and the elders and the officers and all the men and all the women and all the children and all the proselytes and this group of the wood choppers and the water carriers. So everyone's here. But what's the significance of having these people here now for this declaration? Let's let's hold the question for a little bit. So we read further and I think we read something somewhat frightening and seemingly unfair. Moshe tells the nation that we're about to join a covenant with Hashem our God, and he is going to establish us today as his people. He's going to be our God. And by the way, this agreement, this covenant is not just with the people that are present today, but also future generations. And the reason why we have to make this covenant, this eternal covenant with God starting now, it's because... These people, the Jewish people, that is, they have grounds for people to go astray. They were in Egypt and they saw all kinds of idolaters and all these foreign nations that we've now passed through and they're all doing idolatry. You have been exposed to foreign influences 
And maybe this is verse 17. Perhaps there's someone among you, a man or a woman or a family or a tribe, and their heart is turning astray. And they don't want to be with Hashem your God. They want to do idol worship. Maybe there's a person, a man, a woman, or maybe even a family or tribe. There's a bad apple and they're going to do idolatry. And then what's going to happen? Hashem will set them aside for evil from among the tribes of Israel. That person is going to get destroyed. But then we read something really unusual, maybe a little bizarre. This is starting from verse 21 through verse 27. The later generations, so after this happens, there's going to be someone, a man, a woman, maybe a family, maybe a tribe, they're going to do idolatry. They themselves are going to be destroyed. And then we read what's going to happen to everyone else. There's going to be other people in a future generation. And it's going to be your descendants. It's going to be foreigners. And they're going to see what happened to the destruction of the land of Israel. And they're going to see the devastation and the desolation and sulfur and salt and a conflagration of the entire land. And it's going to be so thoroughly destroyed, you can no longer sow or sprout, no grass. It's going to be desolate. It's going to be apocalyptic. And people are going to ask, this upheaval akin to Sodom and Gomorrah and the other outlying cities where God turned over those cities in his wrath and his anger. And people are going to say, well, why did God do it? The same thing that he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. Why did he do it to the Jewish people? And the answer they're going to say is because they did idolatry. They did idolatry and therefore God destroyed them and God destroyed their hold on the land. And that's why he plucked them from here and sent them to a different location. So there's something a little bit unusual here in Rashi and the commentaries and the Talmud talks about this at length and that's going to be one of the main subjects of this podcast. We have some rotten apples. We have some people that are deviant, that are evil, that are departing from everyone else. It could be a man, it could be a woman, maybe a family, maybe even a tribe. But there is a segment of of our population, could be very small, could even be an individual, that's going to go astray. That's going to want to act like the Canaanites, like the Egyptians, like all the other pagan idolatrous nations that we've encountered. And they're going to do idolatry. And before you know it, the land of Israel is going to be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to be laid waste and made desolate by God as, so to speak, his anger flares up against the Jewish people. But wait a minute. Why is the entire land being destroyed because of the actions of a single person? A man, a woman, maybe even a family? A minority of the nation is going to sin and the entire nation, the entire land is going to be destroyed and the entire people are going to be uprooted from their land and sent elsewhere. And again, there's very scary verses here, like verse 27 here. Hashem removed them from upon their soil with anger, with wrath, with great fury, cast them to another land as this very day. This is very harsh descriptions of this expulsion from the land of Israel that the entire nation is going to have to endure. Now, of course, this is Moshe speaking before it happened, and we could look back and say it did happen. The Jewish people were booted from the land, in fact, multiple times. And here we're told the reason is because there's going to be one individual who goes astray. How do we reconcile one person sinning and everyone else suffering? So let's read verse 28, which is the last verse of this section. The hidden 
sins are for Hashem our God, but the revealed sins are for us and for our children forever to carry the words of the Torah. Rashi tells us something very scary over here. What it tells us is that the revealed sins of the individual are actually distributed to the entire nation. So yes, you may have one man, one woman, one family, one tribe does the sin, but because it is revealed to all and they don't stop it, even though maybe they have the ability and the influence to stop it, they are guilty and they are culpable and therefore the entire people suffer. So just hold that thought. We're going to develop that in a little bit. But just by way of penetrating the subject, we have a description of the land of Israel. Remember, the people aren't even in the land of Israel. They're about to go in. Moshe's about to die. It's that last day of Moshe's life. He's going to pass. They're going to mourn him for 30 days and then they're going to enter. And they're told that in the event that people commit idolatry, and even if it's only a minority of the nation, everyone's going to suffer. And how is the land going to be treated? Like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you think about it for a second, this raises a very difficult question. Why is the destruction of Israel compared to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? In fact, it seems like it's the exact opposite. Remember, all the way back in Genesis... Abraham is told that Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed. And Abraham launches into this legendary prayer to have the cities be spared. And he has an argument. Well, maybe there's a few righteous people to save the city. And ultimately, there weren't sufficient righteous people to save the city. But had there been a few righteous people, the cities would have been spared. So in Sodom and Gomorrah, the few would have saved the many. Whereas over here, we're told the exact opposite. That the few, the few sinners, the man, the woman, the family, the tribe, they are going to condemn everyone. So the verse describes it like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, yet it's almost the exact opposite. And I think what we're discovering here is a little bit about what it means to be part of the Jewish nation. What is the essence of our nation? Again, going back to the introduction of this convention, this covenant. Today, the Almighty is going to pass us into a covenant. We're going to seal a treaty, a pact, a deal. And this is a quote, verse 12. In order to establish you today as a people to him, and that he, i.e. God, be a God to you. This Parsha is about the nation being formally forged into being the chosen people. In this description, we are becoming the nation of God. What does it mean to be the nation of God? So we say in our prayers, Ata echad, you are one, and your name is one, and who is like your nation, Israel? One nation in the land. We are the nation that reflects God in this world. And more specifically, We are the nation that reflects God's singularity, God's indivisible oneness in this world. We are a single, indivisible entity, in some ways, parallel to God himself. And our sages tell us a very deep idea. Our nation is physiologically different than all other nations. Each one of us, of course, has a soul, 
But our soul, a small portion of our soul, is placed together with the soul of every other Jew. Moreover, I am the guardian of a small part of the soul of every other Jew. And therefore, what happens when I do a mitzvah? Of course, my soul benefits, but also the small little bit of the souls of every other Jew that is attached to my soul, they also benefit when I do the mitzvah. And conversely, when I do a sin, it's not just my load to bear. Every other Jew who has a small portion of their soul deposited within me also suffers. And that's this idea that Rashi quotes over here. That when one person sins, because there is this idea of spiritual interdependence, it's not just their own sin. That sin is distributed to the entire nation. And therefore you could have a possibility of one person being responsible for the destruction of the land. Because every person is a guardian, not just of their own soul, but of the soul of every other Jew. And the way this is described in the Talmud is that every Jew is a guarantor for every other Jew's spiritual well-being. Because I am harboring a little bit of every person's soul within me, therefore I have responsibility for their spiritual wellness. And I'm a guarantor. And if they don't do their right job, I suffer because I am bearing a little bit of their soul and they are bearing a little bit of my soul. So how many mitzvos is a person obligated in? They are obligated not just in their own mitzvos, in the 613 mitzvos that they themselves on a limited individual scale are responsible for, they are also responsible by every mitzvah multiplied by the amount of Jews that there are. So the way this is described in Jewish literature, again, this is an idea that I think is not very well known, but it's found in Rashi, it's found in the Talmud, it's found in the most reputable sources in Jewish literature. This leads to collective responsibility. So the way the Midrash describes it is that the entire Jewish nation were all on the same boat. So if someone makes a puncher in the boat and they say, hey, it's just, it's just where I'm sitting, of course we know that that's going to affect everyone equally. And this idea, by the way, has halachic implications. We know that there is a prohibition against someone making an unnecessary blessing. So if I fulfill the mitzvah, like I wore my tefillin today, and I made the blessing for wearing the tefillin, and now I make a blessing a second time, that would be a blessing in vain. However, what if someone else has not yet fulfilled their mitzvah? Can I make a blessing for them? And the answer is yes. Because so long as there is another Jew in the world who has not yet fulfilled their mitzvah, every other Jew's mitzvah is not yet fulfilled. And this idea is found really in all areas of Jewish life. All of our religious activities are communal. You know, we're about to reach Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, 
and we have prayer. Of course, the prayer is communal. Prayer is always communal. The requests that we make in our prayer, we make in the plural form. And when we confess on Yom Kippur, we don't say, I sinned. We say, we sinned. Asham nu, Bagad nu. We all collectively sinned. The idea of to love your fellow as yourself, this too finds its spiritual roots in this idea. What this is telling us is that the Jewish nation is unique. We're one entity. I am not required to love my fellow despite our differences. What I'm being asked to do when the Torah tells me to love my fellow as myself is to realize that on a spiritual level, we are two indivisible parts of one whole. The Talmud tells us that someone who takes revenge, someone does something bad to you, and you lash back at them and you get your revenge, that is akin to a butcher who is hacking away at a slab of meat, and by mistake, he slashes his own hand. So he takes the butcher knife in his right hand and he's hacking away and by mistake he hits his left hand and maybe slashes himself or causes a terrible wound. Now the left hand is in pain and it's angry. So it grabs the knife out of the right hand's hand and starts hacking away at the right hand. Of course, that's illogical because you realize you're just causing yourself more pain. Says the Talmud, that is revenge. The Jewish people were one unit. Just like God is one in this world, we are the nation of oneness, the unified nation on a spiritual level. Parts of our souls are distributed in every other Jew and parts of every Jew are within us. We're one entity on a spiritual level and therefore when I do something bad to someone else and they get revenge, they're just hitting themselves twice. So what's happening over here? The Jewish nation is being made the nation of God. What we're told here is that the nation of God means the nation that's similar to God. And just like God is one, we too are one. And this is the reason why the woodchoppers and the water carriers the lowest class, so to speak, of the Jewish people, people who have not been mentioned yet in the story, they're mentioned here. There's all types of Jews. Maybe there's 10 different classes. But the bottom of the totem pole, that's the wood choppers and the water carriers. And now when the nation is being forged into a single unit, they must be on board as well. We cannot leave them behind. The Midrash compares the Jewish people to wheat. And it gives a lot of comparisons between the Jewish people and wheat. And one of the comparisons is that just like when you weigh wheat, you weigh the chaff and the kernels, the good, so to speak, with the bad, it's all part of the same unit. So to the Jewish people, when we are measured, we are measured collectively as a single entity. These are the unique characteristics of our nation. Indeed, there are no other nations that have this quality. Sodom and Gomorrah, they were a collection of individuals, and therefore no one was guilty with the sins of their neighbor. 
the Jewish people. If one man or woman sins, it is a communal sin, and therefore everyone is culpable, and the entire nation can suffer as a result. Now, this idea, I think, places tremendous responsibility on each and every one of us. If we are the proverbial woodchoppers, we have to be upstanding as well. Because if we're not, we're condemning everyone else to doom. But on the flip side, I think it's an incredible safety net, if you will, to know that every other Jew in the world who does a mitzvah, I get a small slice of that. And when I do a mitzvah, it's not just an isolated, discreet act that I do myself. It's going to reverberate spiritually within every other Jew on the planet. They used to say in the 1800s, if a Jew in Vilna, which was the spiritual capital of the world at the time, if a Jew in Vilna studies Torah, a Jew in Paris, which was maybe the most secular place in the Jewish world, a Jew in Paris is going to connect to himself spiritually. We are interconnected at a very fundamental spiritual level. We're all parts of one whole. We're each guarantors for each other, and we're all in this boat together. There's a staggering teaching in the Talmud. In the book of Yoma, page 86b, of course, this is topical to the high holy days that are swiftly approaching. The Talmud tells us that if one person repents, the entire world can be forgiven. And the commentaries explain that because every person is distributed across the rest of the Jewish nation, when they uplift themselves, when they repent, every other Jew on the planet is going to have a spiritual uplifting as well. What a powerful idea. Each one of us individually can affect the entire nation. There's a piece of me deposited inside each other Jew, and there's a small piece of every other Jew within me. I think our nation, we kind of get this innately. You know, in every Jewish community, Jews care for each other. In every society, every culture, you know, there's like 20 or so Muslim countries in the world, and a lot of them have wars with each other. And we only have one Jewish nation in the world, and one Jewish country in the world. But the idea of a civil war amongst Jews, the idea of Jews killing each other is so anathema to us, maybe because of this point, we kind of get that we're more than just a collection of like-minded individuals. In fact, Jews are not like-minded at all. But we're united almost to our bones. We're wired into each other and we're connected on this fundamental level. I think maybe we could even speculate that this is one of the lessons, the takeaways of, of coronavirus. It's almost like this virus, it's like collectively infecting all of humanity. Almost as if humanity was of one body. I think that's somewhat of a picture of what our nation is really like. We are all responsible for each other. We are all guarantors for each other. 
If there's another Jew that's spiritually lacking, there's something wrong with me. If I do something good, everyone else benefits. We are all the recipients of the good and bad of other people's spiritual life. We cannot afford to say, hey, you know what? I'm on my spiritual island. I'm good. I'm doing Shabbos and kosher and tefillin and Torah. I'm okay. Everyone else, they could go to hell. Literally. You can't say that. Because if everyone else goes to hell, you know who they're dragging along with you? They're dragging you off your cozy little island. Because we're interconnected and we're interdependent. This idea, again, it's, it's a, it's kind of a radical idea, but Rashi quotes this from the Talmud, and that's the idea of this whole portion. Moshe's gathering the nation. Everyone's there. The woodchoppers, the woodchoppers, everyone. And they're all being forged into this single nation right now. And if one person sins, that sin can affect the entire nation. And therefore, who could say, you know what, I'm good, and to hell with everyone else? Can't do that. We have to take responsibility for every one of our Jewish brethren. Already in the early parts of the 20th century, when secularism and abandoning of Torah was all the rage in Europe, the Chavetz Chaim, one of the great Jewish leaders of the time, he said that every community rabbi has to spend a minimum of a day a month visiting the Jews who were strained and trying to bring them back to Torah and to their heritage. And if not, he says, they're going to burn in hell. Now, of course, our approach is not about doom and gloom. We're not going to talk about hell, but just eternal positivity. We love our Jewish brethren. We care for them. And we feel terrible that they're missing out on Torah. Let's do our part. Let's share some delightful idea with them. Let's try to help infuse not only our life, but the life of everyone that we encounter. Let's try to infuse their life with meaning. Let's help everyone, not just ourselves, develop an appreciation for the spiritual and for the meaningful. And again, we recognize that this is not about trying to benefit others. There's a part of you that's encased in every other Jew. And it doesn't matter where you fall in the spectrum of the first of the ten, the heads of the tribes, the leaders, the elders, the officers, or if you happen to be at the bottom of that scale, you're a woodchopper, you're a water carrier, you're someone at the very bottom of this spectrum of the Jewish nation. We don't even know if you're one of us, you're allegiances are in doubt, you're still part of the same boat. And everyone has to realize that they're not existing in spiritual isolation. I think it's very comforting. It's comforting to know that we rise and fall together as a nation. And if there are people that are spiritually and morally lacking everyone will suffer as a result because everyone is locked in, interlinked with that other person. And this, of course, places grave responsibility on our shoulders. I do a mitzvah 
as one of 600,000 Jews or 6 million Jews or 10 million Jews, I've done a small fraction of what, I, what I'm responsible for because I'm responsible. I'm the guarantor after all for every other Jew's mitzvah. So I did a small part of it. I did the part that I'm most responsible for because ultimately you're most responsible for yourself, for your portion of keeping your word of this covenant. But we have to realize that if you do everything that you need to do, there is still so much more of what is required on you based upon this covenant that has to be done by other people. And if they don't do their job, you have not done your job either. But I also think it's empowering. It's empowering to know that all the giants of our nation, we're kind of connected to them on a very intimate level. And the small deeds that we do, they're never small. Because even if it's the smallest thing in the world, if it gets multiplied times every other Jew on the planet, that's already a big thing. It's a great accomplishment. And there's nothing that's meaningless. One person repents. The entire Jewish nation is unlocking atonement as a result. When we say Shema Yisrael, Hear, O Israel, our sages tell us we're recognizing this point. I am part of this nation. This nation that is different than every other nation on the planet. I'm part of the nation of God. I was at this covenant. Maybe I wasn't there personally. But again, this was done not only with the people privy to this experience. This was done with all future generations. So I agreed. We all agreed to this. I'm part of this nation. And only after I say Shema Yisrael can I make the declaration Hashem Echad God is one. Because the Jewish nation is the nation of God. And the way we can represent God's oneness in the world is only because we're part of this nation, the indivisible nation, the singular nation, the unified nation, the nation that is fused and forged together. We rise and fall together. We're all mutually responsible for each other. None of us are on our own. There's no man left behind. We have complete and total spiritual interdependence. I thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Have a fantastic Shabbos. My email address is rabbiwalbejim.com. I look forward to hearing from you.